0: Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Today, we'll be speaking with Margot Webb, a child survivor of the Holocaust, about her new novel, Tears in the Eyes of My Enemy. But first, one brief reminder, check out our video interview series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with historians, diplomats, Middle East experts, even an astronaut and an NFL player, and iconic DJ, Cousin Brucie. Watch our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Well, when Margot Webb was born in Halle, Germany, the country was a few years away from coming under the control of the Nazi party. She was unable to lead a normal child's life, constantly aware of the Nazis, witnessing the tragedies of the Holocaust and losing most of her family in concentration camps. Fortunately, Margo was able to immigrate to the United States. Settling in San Francisco with her remaining family, Margot attended school and even sang in the San Francisco Opera Chorus. She's worked as a teacher, often giving lessons on the Holocaust and with fair housing and other organizations that focus on ending prejudice and creating equality. She now lives in Los Angeles, where she continues to write and lecture. Now, 94, Margot has published a new novel, Tears in the Eyes of My Enemy. Based on Margot's real-life experiences, the novel blends fact and fiction. It follows Miriam, a German-born woman who returns to her home country in 1998 and visits the towns of Halle and Arnstadt. The trip leaves her shaken, bringing up memories of her childhood and the terror of living under Nazi rule. However, she also notices that young people don't know the truth about the Holocaust and Hitler and are hungry to hear about what really happened. She decides to return to Germany and spends years giving lectures, directing plays, and forming a close relationship with the young people of the community. Well, I'll be speaking with Margot today about tears in the eyes of my enemy and the importance of continuing to remember and educate on the Holocaust. Margot, thank you for being with us today.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: Well, this book is based on your own experiences being born in Germany, witnessing the rise of the Nazis and the Holocaust and escaping from the country. So the question really is, why did you decide to write and publish this novel? And was it something that you would plan to do for a long time?
1: Actually, I was visiting a family that was living in London. They had escaped to London during the Holocaust. They were people from my hometown of Halle, And there was an older cousin. She said, look, you were so close to Germany now. Let's go back and see what it was like. After all, she said, that's our fatherland and when she said the word fatherland i definitely didn't want to go i was too too reminiscent of nazi talk but she said well margot i've already bought the tickets so you have to come so off we went to hallo and that wasn't so difficult because no one was alive any longer no one I I never felt really, really happy in Halle, even though I was born there. My happiness came from the small town, Arnstadt. So my emotions weren't out of control in Halle. What we did there was meet with a geologist who was half Jewish and who had been married to a Christian woman during the Holocaust, and they spent all their time saving Jews. And this man became a friend of the English family. And now he's a friend of mine, of course, too. And he showed us our department store, the house we had lived in. He even took us to an opera. And we were at his house a lot. But then we decided Because I wanted to go so much to Arnstadt, where my maternal grandparents lived. I wanted to feel again their love, the happiness I felt there. And so my cousin agreed to go for three or four days to Halle and to Arnstadt. And that's how I got there.
0: When the main character of your novel, Miriam, returns to Germany, she is immediately confronted with memories. Uh, German Jews um, throughout, uh, at least during the modern period, up to the, the period, uh, let's say of the 1920s at least, um, felt that they, they loved Germany. They were loyal German citizens. Uh, for example, your uncle uh, lost his life fighting for Germany uh, in World War I. So with that, what are your memories of, of childhood in Halle that stand out uh, in your mind? And talk to us about growing up in in the late 1920s and the 1930s.
1: We lived a very... My parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents had been quite wealthy. So we lived in a huge house. We had upstairs maids and downstairs maids. We had gardeners. We had a constant nanny for me. We had a wonderful fat cook that I used to try to run to, to hide from all the uh, autocratic way I was brought up. And when I went to school in Halle, I went to a French school, which is now a music school. And you can hear the students playing Beethoven concertos already. It's a wonderful school. And so that was the school I went to. But when we moved, because Hitler took our house, took our stores, took our apartment buildings, took everything, when we moved to Arnstadt, my maternal grandparents lived there. And life was completely different. My grandfather was a dealer in Arabian horses. So it was more provincial, uh, a small town, maybe 75,000 people. And uh, they lived in a house that had been built 500 years before. And it was a huge house because it had been lodging for traders 500 years ago. They would take their horses into stables that were there and sleep there for the night. Well, my grandparents made it into a beautiful home. And so that's where we stayed. But the Germans, whether they were Nazis or not Nazis, wanted the pa- a painting that was in front of the house To stay. It was a painting of St. Christopher carrying baby Jesus on his back. And that had to stay. It rose from the street all the way to the fourth story and a little bit toward the attic. So it was a big, big painting. And I always felt it was a little odd. Here I am, a Jewish girl with his saint supposedly (laughs) protecting me. Only he somehow failed. I went to school in Arnstadt with girls that I had met before because I used to go there for vacations to my grandparents. And I loved that school too. It was a small school, but very academic. It was called a gymnasium. And the children who could go to a gymnasium were what we call gifted children nowadays. The others went to trade schools from third grade on. So that school suited us all very well. However, on the second day that we moved into my grandparents' place, I went to school and I stood on the playground and waited for the teacher to call us. There was one girl who had been a good friend of mine and she said, so how long are you going to stay this time? And I said, I don't know, maybe forever. Oh, she said, God forbid. And then she turned to somebody else and said, don't forget, we have the Hitler Youth tonight. And I said, what's that? And she said, it's a group of girls who do good things for our Fuhrer, Hitler. And I said, well, can't I come? And she said, of course not. You're a Jew. No. And she walked away. And she had been a friend of mine before. So I went home quite sad. But nonetheless, I continued to play with the children that I had known before. Until about a year after we lived there, the principal called me into his office. And I thought, why are you calling me? I've been a good girl. I haven't done anything. Got good grades. I studied. What does he want? And he said, "Uh, Margot, you're such a good girl that I'm putting you on vacation. I said, I don't want to go on a vacation. I love school. He said, well, I'm telling you, you're going on vacation and you're going on vacation forever. We cannot have Jews in our school. I, I couldn't believe it. And I said, "Well, I have my books here and everything." Oh, well, he said, "Don't worry about that. We've already put all your stuff out on the street. Just go." And I picked everything up. It was snowing, it was cold. And my best friend, who had lived across the street from us had run out, sneaked out of the school without a coat on and a thin little dress to tell me that one day this will be over and I'll always love you. And with that, I picked up my books, my coat, my skis. We used to ski to school and went home and my mother and grandmother were standing out in front. And of course I was crying. And she, they told me that every Jewish child in Germany was asked to leave the school that day. That was the beginning of my extreme sadness and fear.
0: Well, tell us briefly uh, from that point, what, what happened? About the story of how you and your family were able to leave Germany. What what unfolded after that um, clearly traumatic encounter with uh, Nazi uh, ideology and and anti-Semitism?
1: Well, what happened after that was that I was an only child and I was alone. (laughs) I was alone. I started playing with dolls and Made them into people. I lived imaginationary uh, life. My grandmother was a wonderful storyteller, and she kept me occupied. And then we hired a Jewish teacher who was very mean to me, and he he thought he was teaching me, but I'd already learned all that stuff in the gymnasium. And I complained about it, and my grandmother sat in on a lesson and saw that I was right, and she fired him, and my grandmother became my teacher. And that was wonderful. But every so often, the girl who had been my best friend, her name was Rosa Marie, she would sneak over from her house and come to my house, and we'd play. And it was very dangerous because she could have been killed, you know, but she did it. So my grandmother realized that I really needed a playmate. And there were only two Jewish girls in the town. I was one. And another one was a girl who was already 13 years old. But she asked the girl to come and play with me one afternoon. The girl came. And she smelled terrible. And I said to my grandmother, get her out of here. I was a little bit spoiled, you can tell. (laughs) And she doesn't smell good. Well, the girl went in the bathroom and changed her clothes. She had urinated because she was very, very nervous. And she came to me and she said, would you like to know why that happened? They took my father two nights ago, put him in a concentration camp, and I don't know if they're torturing him or if he's already dead. And I worry about my father. I can't think of anything else. And I wet my pants. Does that matter? Does that really matter? Or are you too young to understand that? and that was a real wake up call for me she of course didn't want to play with me anymore and that that was okay but everything got worse and worse i saw one morning as the other children were going to school i saw our math my previous math teacher now their math teacher on his way to school and a group of ss men came and told him Look, you to run in a circle, get some exercise before you go meet your Christian class. And he made them, made this man run in a circle, run in a circle. And he finally said, I can't do anymore. I'm not athletic. I, I can't do anymore. And they said, keep on or we'll beat you to keep you going. He ran for over an hour. And he finally collapsed. And when he collapsed, he had a heart attack and he died.
0: What, at that point, what were your parents saying and what were they doing about how to uh, to react to all of this?
1: Well, my father was constantly in Berlin or somewhere trying to get us a visa. He was negotiating. He was seldom there. My mother was courageous, but she didn't know what to do with me because I was so emotionally upset. So what I like to do was spend time with the cook. You know, she would let me taste coffee or uh, talk to me in a normal tone until one morning I went there and she wasn't there. And I asked my mother, what happened to the cook? Well, Hitler said, Jews can no longer have Christian servants. So everybody's gone the cooks, the gardeners, the cleaners, everybody was gone. So it's just your grandmother, your mother, your grandfather, and on the occasions that your father is here. So, in a way, I was kind of pleased because I thought, now I'm going to learn. Cook, or I'll learn to do dishes, or I can be helpful, I can have a relationship on a more adult level. And I hoped that would happen, but I cried so often that I missed the mark. And one night there was a knock on the door, and all the curtains were drawn in the, all the rooms, and in walked a husband and wife and a boy, and they were all dressed in three or four different coats. I mean, one on top of the other. My grandfather had arranged that these people could spend a night in our house because they were walking to Switzerland and they had all their possessions with them. And the boy was about my age and I was so happy to talk to him. I thought we can surely keep them here But no, he he understood the reality that he had to leave with his parents or they would be killed.
0: Was your father was your father ultimately able to get that visa? They were so spiritually difficult to get a hold of.
1: It was very difficult, but my father came from such a wealthy family that the name alone got him the visa.
0: And the visa was to Where? From which from which embassy was he able to um, to get that from the U.S.? Uh, Yes. And and at that point, what happened with the family? He got the visa and and the idea was to, I I gather, just bring all of your belongings together and and leave as soon as you could. But walk us through that. uh...
1: He got a visa just for himself. So he had to go because he had the opportunity and try to find a job, something he had never done before, Uh, find a job, find a place for us to live. And we found out that my grandmother had a brother who lived in California. He had left much earlier before Hitler. He felt the anti-Semitism, and he felt that he would like to not live in Germany. And so he had made a small fortune, lived in a nice house in California, and he got them the visa my for my grandfather and my grandmother. So that meant that my mother and I would remain in Germany while my grandparents could go to California. But my grandfather went to Berlin, talked to the uh, American consul and said, we are giving our visas to my granddaughter and to my daughter, we will stay behind. And that, of course, has been sitting on my mind on a daily basis. I mourn them every day because we got the visas, we came to the United States, My grandparents tried to escape to Amsterdam, but they were picked up and taken to Sobibor, the death camp. And one fine day in March of 1943, uh, they were gassed and then thrown into the ovens to burn. So they gave up their lives.
0: I, I'm sure that that it preys on you. I mean, these stories of 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 these impossible choices that that people had to make literally on the spot uh, about their their future and about their families as as you've related this. now, about how old were you at at this point when you were ready to depart Germany?
1: eleven
0: you were 11. So this is already about what, 1937 or 1938? Yes. Because once we get into late 38 and, and then 1939, it gets virtually impossible to leave. So in that sense, clearly you were, you were fortunate and, and the clock was ticking, no question about it. Now, what do you remember about the, the days before you departed? And and what did you do? Did you go to Hamburg and then sail to the United States? What was the
1: No, no, it wasn't that quick. Uh, I, I made a short story of it. Uh, what happened prior to my grandparents getting the visa to come to uh, California, uh, my grandfather and my uncle invited me for breakfast one morning, and the windows were open. And my grandfather said, stop being so afraid, the Gestapo and all those SS people, they're really cowards at heart. What I didn't know, what they didn't know was that there was a Gestapo man standing under the window and heard that conversation. And he came barging into the house and he said, you two men, you're going to Buchenwald, which was a concentration camp very close to Arnstadt, where I stayed with my grandparents and they were taken that day to Buchenwald and they stayed there for a month. But again, they had the money to buy their way out, but not before they were tortured, not before they were beaten, not before I didn't see the bloody back of my grandfather where he'd been whipped. And then shortly after Buchenwald, we were given the visa, but the council in Berlin, the American council said that we had to get a health certificate that we're, my mother and I were healthy. Well, my mother was, but I had bad tonsils. <laughs> and they said, I had to have those tonsils out. So we went back to Arnstadt Couldn't find a doctor. All the Jewish doctors were gone. The Christian doctors didn't want to do it. And finally, one Christian doctor said, oh, I don't mind doing it. I kind of enjoy doing that. And so I was taken into the hospital. I had to sit in front of the doctor. The nurse stood behind. And he said, I have anesthetic for the first tonsil but not for the second one. So you're just gonna have to learn to be quiet. And with that, he stuck his instrument in, took out the first tonsil, and he said, you know, I need a little break. And you can think about how it'll feel with the second tonsil, because I have nothing to help you. And of course, I was scared to death. And he came back, He sat on a little low stool and my leg just went up and he fell off the stool and he said, you're trying to hurt me? No, I'll show you what pain is. And he began to take out that tonsil by snipping little pieces of flesh. I couldn't scream because I was drowning in my own blood until finally the nurse said, look, She's going to die if we don't help her now. So they stopped and took it out.
0: So after that, from that point to the point where you departed, where you left Germany, how long was that period?
1: There was still one more incident where the SS came to every house in every Jewish home and took the jewels. They said, here... My grandmother gave all her jewels that she had. My mother did. And I said, I have a little necklace. It was a coral necklace. And the SS officer said, my, that's so nice of you. But it's not worth much. You can keep that. Is there anything you really like? And I said, you're so nice to me. I'd like to show you my horse. And he said, I'd love to see it. And we went out to the stalls, and my little horse was there. It was not a a very healthy horse. I think it was given to me in desperation for me to have something to play with. And the SS officer said, that's a very nice horse, and I'm going to do something nice for it. He took out a gun, and he shot it in front of me.
0: Well, so after that, how were you able... To, to travel out. What, what was the first stop outside Arnstadt Halle um, to, in order to, to go west to the United States?
1: We left uh, from Arnstadt in a train, which was to take us to Hamburg. And my grandparents took us to the train and I was put into the train with my mother. And I saw the size of the window was just about big enough For me to jump out back onto the platform. And of course, there was hysteria. My grandfather picked me up, the train was already moving, and he shoved me back in the train. He almost lost his life by having to jump off a moving train. But we got to Hamburg, and then the ship was waiting for us in Bremerhaven, that was the port. And as soon as we got there, An SS person went up to my mother and said, we understand that you're a spy. Your name is Ilsa Levine, right? And she said, yes, I'm not a spy. He said, you come with us in the custom house and we'll see if you're a spy or not. Well, they searched her and they didn't find anything. So another SS officer said, you know, these Jews are very clever. We don't know if her daughter has this stuff let's search her and so they let my mother go they put me into this search room they ripped my coat into a million pieces that my grandmother had made for me and two of them raped me and they couldn't find anything and so they let me go and i i fell down i was And I decided I was not going to tell my mother. I was not. They had kept secrets from me throughout these years of Nazism. And I wasn't going to hurt her anymore. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know that was a sexual thing. I was really an innocent. I thought it was a punishment. And so I never, ever told her. I I boarded the ship with my mother and. All of a sudden, I saw a late passenger come running toward the gangplank in a hurry because she was the last one on board in a red coat and a little red hat. And the SS killed her, shot her. That was the spy. They did get the spy. And it was that last passenger.
0: Wow. So you you sailed from Hamburg to New York?
1: From Bremer'shaven, yes.
0: And then made your way to California. Uh, by train?
1: Yes. My father met us in New York and we went by train and he had settled in a little town called Erie in Pennsylvania. And that's where we lived for a long time until we were able to go to California.
0: Where you had your your uncle? Was it your uncle who was living there? Yes. (laughs) Well, tell me something. Um, Like Miriam, your experiences and the things you witnessed as a child and experienced as a child in Germany shaped the decisions you've made in your adult life. So, how did, how did your experiences influence you as an adult? Came here as a child, but, but clearly, those experiences, as, as one would expect, were so indelibly marked on you. Um, So how did all of that affect your life as an adult?
1: Uh, It's a big question. I did a lot of reading, and I had some very nice friends, both in Erie as well, more in California. When we moved to California, I was fortunate again to go to a very good school. And I began to study a lot of philosophy. And I realized that I had a choice I had a choice of being like many of the German Jews are to be bitter to be autocratic to complain. All the time German Jews my age don't like me very much. And I have too good a time when I'm having a good time and I cry easily I'm sad. I would say 60% of every day. But during the 40% that I'm not sad, I have a good time. I try to do good deeds. I try to work against prejudice. That's my biggest thing is to have people understand that we're people. It doesn't matter what religion, what color, whatever, what position we have in life, whether we're multimillionaire or poor. And so I've worked, as you pointed out, I worked with fair housing, I worked tutoring, I worked with sick people, visiting them, reading to them, and I finally got my degree as a psychologist. And although I was a teacher, I eventually ended up with groups of disturbed children and tried to make their lives a little better. And now, there's, you don't know where to begin where help is needed. That's, that's how I see life, that I'm here to help.
0: Well, you, you spent many years uh, teaching and have lectured on the Holocaust. What made you decide to write a novel rather than a, a nonfiction book or strictly a, a memoir?
1: I have written a strictly uh, honest book uh, that was my first one. And then that was more for children who are between the ages of 12 to 16. Then I wrote another book because when I married, I married a man from India. And I moved to India with him. Because I felt the Indians were so peaceful, so quiet, and I needed that, so I lived in India for quite a while.
0: Wherever you have been, whether it's in California or in India, you, you've you've had an opportunity clearly to to talk about the the Holocaust. Now here at B'nai Brith, we emphasize the importance of and and push for more Holocaust education because. With the passing of survivors, uh, I mean, what you—the story that you've told us today, this first-person recounting of of this of these indignities and this punishment and this discrimination, this violence before your eyes—it it, as we move further away from the Holocaust, and we've seen studies. There was an important study last year, survey by the Claims Conference. Which showed that of the Generation Z, um, young people, millennials, they can't name a concentration camp. Uh, They don't know how many uh, millions of people were killed by the Nazis. And believe it or not, I mean, even 11% in that survey felt that the Jews themselves had brought the Holocaust upon the Jews. Oh, I know. So, what kind of, what do you? How how have you dealt with that issue, particularly with young people over the years?
1: No, I did not want to give you the idea that Tears in the Eyes of My Enemy is a novel. It's a memoir, except for one scene, everything is true in there. So I had to call it a memoir because I couldn't leave that scene out. And so uh, everything is what really happened. I went back to Germany uh, as a visitor with my cousin. She wanted me to see the fatherland, and I met a minister, and the minister said, I want you to give a speech in our church. I said, my German isn't good enough. I sound like a little girl. He said, that's okay. And my cousin invited him and his wife to dinner in the hotel. It was a Friday night. The minister came with his wife, and we had a wonderful dinner set up, and he said, just a moment, and he brought a challah, a minister bringing a challah. He had, when he found out he was invited to the hotel to eat with us, he had taken a train to a nearby city where there was a kosher store and had bought the challah. And when we sat down, of course I was crying as usual, he said, please, everybody stand up. And in Hebrew, he gave the prayers over the challah, and he gave the prayer over the wine.
0: Do um, you feel that the book will be instructive uh, for young people as well as other readers?
1: Definitely, definitely, because, because a great part of it has to do with uh, young girls and who are, um, oh, I'd say 14 to 16, and what they discussed and how they behaved during a play. And then I had a monument made for my grandparents, and it was put in a Jewish cemetery. And on the monument are their names and two stars of David. And in the middle of it, it says, Hineni. And uh, on the back of it, it says in German, why? Why? And a teacher came from Arnstadt with her class. Of course, they were all, there were, were no Jews in Arnstadt. I was the first Jew some of those people had ever seen in their life. And so we started to say the Kaddish. You know, the children came, the teacher was there. There was even police. Why, I don't know. But I started to say the Kaddish and I always felt I, I had a funny accent or I didn't sound right. And all of a sudden I hear a whole bunch of people behind me saying the Kaddish with me. Who do you think that was? It was the children in the class, well, Christian children, saying the Irish. Well So that's in my book. And yes, children were like that.
0: That's I, I can see where, where they, would, they would relate to it. So let me uh, close with um, one question that I hope you can tell us about. What is the next chapter for you? Is there another book? Uh, Are there more lectures? What's ahead?
1: What's ahead is that I hope to go with Rabbi Mark Blazer to Germany at the end of this year. And that we will visit various synagogues. And I hope churches, too, so we can tell them. And again, schools. I had gone to many, many schools in Germany and told the classes you know, what I'd been through. And I expect to do this again because the kids, they want to hear it. They want to hear the truth. And in between my trips to Germany, and I came back to the United States, I talked in schools in America, telling them the stories I had learned in Germany and vice versa. So it's a double teaching. The Germans hear what the Americans think, and the Americans hear what the Germans think.
0: Well, you know, I don't think they'll—I don't think will ever be—and there, there cannot be an end to that. In other words, no. there, there always will need to be because we have new generations, and there will always be the need to educate and tell this story. And um, really, I wish you well. Uh, in uh, all of the activity that you'll be engaged in in the future, because uh, this um, this story shall not and, and cannot fade through the passage of of time. So we certainly wish you the best in that going forward.
1: Thank you very much. And I wish you the best in your work.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, the book is Tears in the Eyes of My Enemy by Margo Webb and is available wherever you purchase books. We really appreciate your joining us and speaking about your book and the experiences that inspired it and the importance of keeping the memory of the Holocaust in the public consciousness. If you're uh, looking for more of our diverse content, visit our website, venebrith.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. And thanks to Margot Webb for joining me. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For my guests, Margot Webb and Vinay Briff, I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you again soon.